Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another very exciting episode of the Spirit of Prophecy podcast. One of the things that I do on this program that some of you love and some of you hate is I will allow other people to come on and give their point of view, and I will listen to what they have to say. I do not mind my position being challenged when it comes to these things, and uh, and I believe very strongly in accurately representing other people's positions. And so when it comes to the subject of prophecy, I have not done much on this program um, at this point on the subject of the millennium. I am a premillennialist, but at the same time, I'm also an independent fundamental Baptist, which means um, I've not allowed my teaching to be challenged hardly at all when it comes to a lot of these things. And I've only heard what independent fundamental Baptists say and typically they're dispensationalists and we know they have tons of flaws in their uh, thinking and all these things. And so this is something where I am wanting to strengthen my position. I'm wanting to search it out, find out for sure what's right. And so before I can go disproving these other positions, I've got to know what they actually teach. And also I've said it before and I'll say it again. You can't trust Baptists and what they say about other people's positions. And so Today, I have a very special guest, Keith Foskey, and uh, some of you might recognize him. You may have seen some of his videos um, where he is imitating other denominations doing funny things. In fact, let me kick it off showing you one, showing different denominations ordering coffee. Welcome to Six Beans Roasters. My name is Chad. I'll be your barista today. Well, hello, Chad. We're a group of denominations here for our monthly meeting. Sounds good. What can I get started for everyone? Yes, I'd like a large coffee, please. I'd like it regulative principle style. That means nothing added, just the way God intended. All right, well, what name would you like me to put on that cup? Sure, put Presbyterian. How do you spell that? Yeah, it's S-U-P-E-R-I-O-R-T-H-E-O-L-O-G-Y. That doesn't spell Presbyterian. Trust me, that's correct. I'm not going to be having coffee today. I just want a cup of ice water because I'm currently in the middle of a Daniel fast, which means I can only have water and vegetables. Chad, do y'all have any sweet tea? You know, the SBC president did say that coffee is bitter water for bitter people facing bitter times. Sure, I can bring you some sweet tea. Okay, Chad, just know this. I like my sweet tea sweet enough that it would cause a normal person to fall into a diabetic coma. I'm talking barbecue restaurant sweet tea. Actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring you some unsweetened tea, and we have sugar packets here on the table. I've never seen anyone try so hard to be the Antichrist. I'd like tea as well, but I'd like a hot cup of English tea with some milk. You put milk in your tea? Okay, I've definitely found the Antichrist. Did somebody say Antichrist? I'll take a beer, please. Sir, this is a coffee shop, and it's 9 a.m. I don't understand the problem. I would like a tall, organically sourced, decaffeinated coffee with steamed soy milk, sweetened with agave nectar, and sprinkled over the top with dark chocolate flakes. I would also like a paper straw. Even though it's incredibly inconvenient and it disintegrates almost immediately, we all know it's much better for the environment. Also, when you put my name on the cup, please be sure to include my pronouns are they and them. You know, they have that on the menu. It's called the lack of testosterone latte. Hey guys, check it out. I already had three coffees at our in-house coffee bar at the Big Eva Multiplex Mega Church and Mini Mall. Big Eva requires big energy. 
So I'm going to need a large iced coffee with a pump of every syrup that you have, and I want you to put as much espresso as you can that is allowed by law. Because as we know, caffeine is the Christian drug of choice. Are you sure that's safe? Hey bro, the Bible says I can drink all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm pretty sure it doesn't say that. Agree to disagree. Okay, so maybe if you, um, after seeing that, you uh, recognize him. These videos are really funny. This is kind of how I first found out about him. But then recently I saw he had done a debate with Spencer Smith about the pre-trib rapture. I found myself actually believing or uh, agreeing with most what he was saying, way more than Spencer Smith. And also uh, on there, you know, he was referring to himself as the king of the amillennialists as well. And so it's like, all right, well, if this guy knows amillennialism, uh, I think he'd be a good one to talk to and, uh, and definitely, uh, appears to know his stuff, um, you know, from the debate. And so, uh, you know, Pastor Foskey, tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your ministry, and then we will get into the subject of today. Well, I want to thank you for having me on, uh, brother. I appreciate it. And I am the pastor of Sovereign Grace Family Church, which is in Jacksonville, Florida. We are a Reformed Baptist church, and uh, I've been the pastor since 2006. So this is my 18th year serving as the pastor of the church. And um, as far as eschatological positions go, I know we're going to get into more of this later, but I haven't always been an amillennialist. I did start, I mentioned this in the debate, I, I started out in, in a very similar situation as you. I went to a, a, a Baptist seminary, which I was taught dispensationalism. I was taught it's the only correct view and everyone else was, a, was incorrect. And um, so that was where I cut my teeth and that was where I was instructed. But um, God has sort of led me in a different direction in my eschatological views. And uh, the king of the amillennialist thing uh, is a joke. And I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it was, it was a joke that started on at the Eschatology Matters website. They did a poll asking Twitter who was their favorite amillennialist. And I was included, which I shouldn't have been because the other men were Kim Riddlebarger and Sam Storm, some of the greatest writers on this subject. And then me, who's never written anything on it at all. And, and yet I won the poll. And so I, I used that to make a big joke and say, look at me, I'm the king of the amillennialists. I put on a Burger King crown and, and made a big fuss about it just to be funny. Well, since then, I've had the opportunity to actually talk more about amillennialism uh, as, as God used that to sort of open up a, a strange door. So that's what's brought me to you today is uh, just this weird, <laughs> it all started with a Burger King crown, I say. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I noticed you were kind of joking with the King of the Amillennialist thing. But at the same time, when I listened to uh, your debate with Spencer Smith, I'm like, no, he, you know, he knows, he's familiar with what he believes and obviously confident enough in what you believe to, uh, you know, be public and, and have a debate. And so when it comes to, when it comes to discussions about things about theology, or whatever, you know, it's, um, I, I, I keep telling everybody, I have a 100% record in treating people fairly being honest and, and these things. And I think that's important. Otherwise people are going to talk to me, but at the same time, there's still people who won't because insecurity is a really big thing, especially in the independent fundamental Baptist world, especially on eschatology. And I do, I think when it comes to eschatology, we ought to be, there's some things we ought to be able to disagree in. And 
Um, I recently had a discussion with a full preterist, which I believe that crosses lines when you're saying Jesus isn't coming back. You don't believe in a literal resurrection. I think that crosses lines. It doesn't mean I can't talk to him, you know, and I, I shouldn't accurately represent him. But from listening to what you believe about amillennialism too, um, you are looking for Jesus to return and believe in a literal resurrection of the dead. So I think that that's good. Now, I do need to say this for the audience because they're going to get mad when they find out this too. But your YouTube channel, I'll leave a link in the description too. It's called Your Calvinist. And so you are a Calvinist. So I know people watching me talk to a Calvinist today are probably going to be scratching their heads a little bit. And, uh, and, and I don't want anybody to think I've compromised on Calvinism, but this is just me showing I can be polite. And, uh, and so no, nothing personal against uh, you, but uh, I, I do like to take shots at Calvinists on, on a regular basis. But today is not that day. <laughs> Well, I appreciate the kindness, and uh, again, this is uh, this is an area where I, I think I think we can have a brotherly disagreement. Uh, one of the things I do like to point out, and hopefully your audience will hear this, uh, I, I believe that you can uh, disagree on this and still be a believer. So I don't think you have to be a Calvinist to be a Christian. And I think if you you know, so I, I don't think this is a place where we where we divide the faith. I think it's where we divide our understanding of how God works and salvation. And 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 I think it's an important distinction. I think it's as i said you know in our conversation um we um you know i treated him like a brother during it because i believe he is a brother in christ so yeah yeah i i thought uh, you know you handle handled all that good so uh you cut out there for a little bit so hopefully everybody got all of what you said but yeah so let's go ahead and get into the subject at hand though so just to start this off, uh, why don't you tell everyone what is amillennialism? If a, I guess a shorter definition of amillennialism, and then we'll kind of get into some of the details on it. Uh, well, there are three different views of the millennium. The millennium obviously is uh, the passage in Revelation chapter 20, which talks about a thousand year reign of Christ. And uh, premillennialists like yourself believe that that is going to be inaugurated with the return of Christ. Christ will return and there will be a thousand year reign. Um, post-millennialists and amillennialists both believe that Christ will return after the millennium. So post-millennialism and amillennialism are essentially the same in that we both believe that Christ will return after the millennium. The difference is how we understand the, the nature of the millennium. Uh, amillennialists tend to understand the reign of Christ as a spiritual reign that's happening now and that it is a rain that is occurring in heaven, and that that we experience that as the church, as Christ reigns over us. And the postmillennialist sees more of a uh, interaction with the world that, that that the church will influence the world and and have a Christianization of the world. So, the the distinction between amillennialism and postmillennialism is is there and is important. But as an amillennialist, we believe that we are currently in the millennium. We are in the church age itself, as the dispensationalists will often say, this is the church age. We would say the church age is the millennial age, and it is inaugurated with Christ's first coming. It is consummated with his second coming or his final coming. And in, in the midst of this is where we are now. And, and the term amillennialist is actually not a good one because ah. Me, the, the alpha privative means the the negation of something like if i say atheist means a non-theist and and it's not that we don't believe in the millennium and so there's other terms that have been 
that have been suggested, like nook millennialism, which simply means something that's that's now, right? Or um, uh, inaugurated millennialism. You know, none of those have caught on because Amil is just too popular. And so, as an amillennialist, that's what it means. It means that we're in it now. It's not okay. that it's not there. It's that we're experiencing it now. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, in the premillennial world, you know, we teach literal. 1000 years so in ah uh, and post-millennial then it is it's more it's just it's more of a symbolic figurative thing um in the discussion i had with the full preterist you know he talked about how to like a thousand that word it can just you know be used for just like an ongoing thing now he believes it was 40 years he believes the millennium was 40 years and already happened which i didn't know if if that's a common thing in the amillennial world but um, so you, but you believe it I, could be longer than a thousand years too, or that it has been. Yeah, I've I, I've never heard that. I've never heard that that the millennium was the forty year period between Christ coming and the and the uh, d destruction of Jerusalem. That 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 was a new one on me. I, I got that in the notes that you sent me, mm -hmm. and I, I hadn't heard someone say that. Um, so no, all millennialists would say we're in the millennium now, and the millennium has actually been more than a thousand years right. because it's obviously been two thousand years since the coming of Christ. And when we think about the word, I, this is one area where I may agree with your previous guest, is that the if the 1,000 years in Revelation 20 is literal, it's the only place in the Bible where a 1,000 years is used to describe an actual literal 1,000 years. Every other place the term 1,000 is used, it's always figurative. Mm -hmm. God owns a cattle on a 1,000 on a hills. Not 1,001, but only 1,000, right? right? So, you know, 1,000 a, a, a years is as a day. Not 1,001, but 1,000. So, so anytime we see the word 1,000 in the Bible anywhere else, we always take it as a figurative number that means a long time mm -hmm. or a lot of things. But in this place, uh, those who argue for a literal interpretation will say, no, this has to be a thousand years because that's what it says. Well, that's what it says in other places. And yet we, we're able to interpret those figuratively because we understand the use of language. So that's, right. that's one of the places where I would say a thousand years, th th that's the least important part of the argument as far as I'm concerned. It's like, like <laughs> the literalness of the thousand. I think the, the more important questions are how we understand the binding of Satan and things like that. Those are more difficult, but the, the literal nature of a thousand years, I think, is is really not that important, in my opinion. Yeah, cause, well, because when I heard that with the 40 years, I'd literally never heard that before. And I didn't think that was probably a common thing amongst uh, the amillennialist world. So uh, I was wanting to check. But to me, while I, I understood what you were saying a lot about the thousand, to me, it has to still be at least a thousand, not less than a thousand to, you know, if you to use it figuratively like that, I, I think you can make a good argument for that. But it would it would have to be at least more than a thousand, you know, like you said, not a thousand in one hill. So yeah, that's interesting. So when it comes to amillennialism, um, what like is there much division? Are there several camps within amillennialism? You know, where do they unite? Where would they typically divide? Um, yeah, there's there's different there there are many distinctions within the amillennialism camp, just like there are within dispensationalism, and there are you know in dispensationalism you have the pre-tribbers, the post-tribbers, the mid-tribbers, mm -hmm. and you have that. Well, you sort of have a similar thing in amillennialism where you have certain folks who focus on 
like this age and the age to come is something that Kim Riddlebarger really focuses on. Um, Sam Storms focuses on the uh, intermediate state as the as the first resurrection, and, and that's an argument that he makes, and that's and it's an important argument uh, as how we understand the you know the 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 first resurrection there is as as when we die, our spirits are with the Lord, and we see those spirits present in the Book of Revelation, like in Revelation five and in Revelation twenty, right? There there are references to that, and so. These sort of different, uh, not necessarily different interpretations, but different focuses uh, come up. And then, of course, everybody's going to have difference of opinion on what the end is going to look like. You know, some some amillennialists take more of a postmillennial sort of uh, optimistic approach about what's coming. Some people take a more negative approach, you know, looking forward to a genuine and real tribulation period, which is going to be similar to the tribulation period that happened in AD 70 and AD 70 is important. I think it should be important to everyone because that was an important marking point in history. And so, yeah, there are distinctions, how, how we understand a coming, you know, future antichrist figure, you know, how he's going to relate to previous antichrist figures like, you know, Nero and, and, and Antiochus Epiphanes and people like that. And, you know, in what way did those represent what's going to happen? There there's, there's all kinds of different views and, um, you know, my, my views sometimes don't even really line up with the, you know, the majority and I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm fine with being in the minority on certain things. Yeah. Yeah. No. So, um, so do pretty much all amillennialists believe in a literal physical return of Christ and a literal resurrection of the dead? Yes, that, that's a great question, and, and I, I should have mentioned that. The one thing I think that unites all of us as amillennialists is that we are in the inter-advental period, meaning we believe in two advents, the first coming of Christ, advent meaning coming or arrival. We believe in the first advent of Christ, which happened uh, when he came in Bethlehem. You know, he, he came. And then we believe in the second advent of Christ, which is a future reality where he will physically return in power and glory, and he will receive unto himself his own. He will judge the nations. He will cast the, the wicked into the lake of fire. All those things will happen. We believe that will happen, and that is still a future event. And we are in between those two events now. We are in the interadvental period, the, the time between the first and second coming. Okay. So then in your prophecy conferences, you guys would have in, in your churches, you know, what do you think, what's everybody talking about that's still to come? Are there any things that you're looking for? Um, you know, is the return of Christ imminent uh, in in your eschatology? Okay. Uh, to, well, let me answer that in two ways because I, I, I sort of separate the questions. You said, what do we talk about? And then the imminency. Mm -hmm. um, let me start with the imminency. Uh, the imminency question is really debated a lot because the question is, what do we think still has to happen? And this even this is even a debate I've had with some of my fellow elders, you know, questions of, you know, what do we think is going to happen before Christ returns? And, um, you know, the gospel going to all nations, right? What does that mean? That, that there will be believers from every tribe, tongue and nation. So so th so we know there are still unreached tribes, right? So so that's is that is that something that Christ is waiting for? You know, when the last person who is in the last tribe hears the gospel is that the is that the moment right that's gonna that, that's gonna end it all right so so 
So when it comes to imminency, that can be an issue, right? Like, like, like who, 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 who among the elect, ha, there's a Calvinistic mm -hmm. phrase, get people upset, who, who among the elect has not yet heard the gospel and been saved, right? So, so that, that, that could be a question of imminency. Um, I believe that Christ can return at any time because I believe just like in his first coming, there were people who misinterpreted the signs of his first coming. I think there's a sense in which we could be misinterpreting some things about the the expansion and the, the, the tribes and different things. And so I take a more imminent approach that if he came today, I wouldn't think that he owed me an explanation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would be happy to see him come and I would be excited to meet him in the air. And so that is uh, that's one of the debates is on the eminency. Now, as far as things to come, there are those who take a very, um, uh, th that look for the, uh, the coming of a man of, you know, a man of sin, man of lawlessness, you know, the idea of an antichrist figure, obviously we're not pre-trib. So we would believe that if that happens, we would be here to see that the church would be here to see that not raptured out. Um, so that's a possibility. Um, of that some people would be looking for that. Some people are looking for a revival among the ethnic Jewish nation. I preached about that just two weeks ago, about do, do we look forward to a revival among the Jewish people? And I think that's certainly possible within the realms of Romans chapter 11, uh, as, as, you know, the end of the age of the Gentiles and the, you know, God grafting back in the, the, the broken branches, right? The ones who've been grafted out have been, to be grafted back in. So, um, so those would be things that we could be looking for. Those are things that we would say, hey, if we, if we see this happening, this could be a, a major important sign. Um, but there are other things that we wouldn't be looking for. Like, for instance, um, a lot of times within dispensationalism, there's, there, there's, you know, it's a lot about the nation of Israel and the rebuilding of a temple and things like that. Those are things that are often the focus. And, but for us, we see those like the Olivet Discourse, we would say, much of that was fulfilled in AD 70, we believe. Mm -hmm. And therefore, a lot of the things that, that people are looking forward to a third temple or looking forward to this thing, we would say that's not necessary. Um, and so that wouldn't be something we're necessarily looking for. Now, if it happened, you know, it might adjust, but it wouldn't necessarily change uh, our eschatology. It would just might just say, okay, well, we weren't expecting that, but yet here it is. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So I guess, let me ask it to you this way too. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm a post-trib, pre-wrath guy, you know, pre-millennial. So we have all been influenced by Clarence Larkin's charts, where you have your seven seals, your seven trumpets, and your seven vials. You know, you got your abomination of desolation that's in the middle. Um, you have, you know, so, um, you know, I personally believe the rapture comes after the seals. I believe we're here for the seals. But um, I guess when it comes to seals, trumpets, vials, do you believe that those have mostly been fulfilled or are you still looking for any of those? Okay. Uh, and this, this will come down to a, a, probably a pretty big difference in, in how we understand Revelation. I understand Revelation in what's called progressive parallelism. Mm -hmm. So I don't see it as, as happening um, consecutively in order, like you just described, literally consecutively, like this leads to this, this leads mm -hmm. to this, leads to this. I think the book of Revelation is written in what's what's known as sort of concentric circles. Like it tells a story and then it tells the same story again. Then it tells the same story again. And seven times through the book of Revelation, we see the same story being told over and over. And so the way you just described it, or where, we, where are we? Well, we are in... <laughs> Uh, much of what it talks about, I think, has already taken place. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I think it does point to what happened in 8070. And I, and I realize 
that you know some people's head might explode when I say I believe Revelation was written before AD 70. That's a position that even Sam Storms would disagree with me on. But I, I do take a partial preterist view of Revelation, which would say that much of these things, like the beast, I do believe the beast was Nero. I believe that was something that the people understood when it was being written and when it was being read. They understood who it was pointing to. And so that's my my understanding of those things. And so are there still things yet to be fulfilled? Yes, but I would take the latter part of Revelation, particularly Revelation 19, uh, the return of Christ. Those are the things we are now currently looking forward to. Yeah, I think this subject of when Revelation was written is really important. And mm -hmm. um, because if it was written before 70 AD, then I do think we would have to recognize the fact that it was pointing to the things that came on Jerusalem during that time and then if we're going to make it about the future we're kind of claiming like a dual purpose or a dual fulfillment type thing you know it, and and i think we need to admit when we're claiming dual fulfillment but if it was written after yeah and so that that's that's a subject too i'm still researching and trying to find out what's the best proof you know either way because i've always i'd never even heard the late or the early date thing until recently and, you know, people brought up some interesting arguments showing internal evidence in the scriptures. And, I, and, I, and so that's, that's an important subject and we don't have to really get into that, but no, I, I think that answers a lot of my questions. So, um, you said you preached about the possible revival of, uh, the Jews. So I guess, um, do you hold to like a replacement theology? And if you do, how would you define it? And do you believe the Jews play a major role in and end times. I uh, your your audience members and possibly most people who disagree with me would say that I hold to replacement theology, mm -hmm. but I think that term, just like you know many other terms that are used in a derogatory way, I think that term is often most used as sort of a attack. You know, mm -hmm. you hold to replacement theology. Um, so I know that's not what you're doing. I'm just saying that's mm. what some people do. And that's and not a so bad word I, in my world, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I prefer the term expansion theology and, and I'm sure you probably have heard that. Yes. Uh, and, and basically for those who haven't, what that simply means is I believe that the, uh, root was Israel and we have been grafted into the root thereby making the tree bigger because the expansion of the gospel went from one nation to all nations this is what we see in pentecost on the on the day of pentecost when the tongues of fire descended upon the people and they spoke in the tongues of other nations that was to show that it was no longer held within a single nation but that it now went out to all nations every tribe tongue people and nation would receive this gospel message fulfilling the promise to abraham that through you all the nations would be blessed which which the the book of galatians says that was his receiving of the gospel Abraham had the gospel preached to him when he was told all the nations will be blessed through you. Well, how are all the nations blessed through him in the expansion of the new covenant, which goes out to all the nations. Mm -hmm. And so are we to make a huge divide between us, uh, between Gentiles and Jews? I think no. And my, my argument for that is uh, the, the latter half of Ephesians chapter two, Ephesians chapter two, we're very familiar with, especially mm -hmm. verses one to 10. We love one to 10, mm -hmm. but, it has stuff after that. And yeah. in verse, I mentioned this in my debate with Spencer, beginning at verse 11 through the end of the chapter, Paul 
exhausts himself trying to display the dis that the, 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 the wall of separation has been broken down and we are one new man in Christ. We who didn't have the covenant and promises, they who did have the covenant and promises have been brought together in one new man, which is in Christ. And therefore there's neither Jew nor Greek. Um, and so does that mean that there are no ethnic Jews? No. And this is something Spencer said. He said, well, there, you know, the Bible mentions the Jews, the church, and mm. it, it makes a distinction. I say, yeah, there, there are Jewish people. There are ethnic mm. Jewish people. And if God, and, and we do know from second Corinthians chapter three, that, that there is currently a veil over their eyes. It actually says, actually says over their heart. Mm -hmm. It says that, that the, the God of this world has veiled their heart so that they cannot see the, the, the in their own scriptures, Jesus, do I believe that veil will be lifted one day? I hope so. I pray so. I pray. I, I would. Do, it would. It would. It would do my heart so good to see an ethnic Jewish person return to Christ, his his Messiah. And so I don't. I don't wish against it. I don't mm. hope against it. But I don't think that it's necessary to fulfill any eschatological promises to Israel because the promises to Israel find their yes and amen in Christ. And mm. so. That's where if, if they are going to experience revival, it will be in Christ. It won't be outside of Christ or outside of the church. It will be in Christ through the church. So, yeah, well, I agree. Point. Yeah, I agree at 100 percent. And yeah, and I don't and yeah, uh, I don't like the term replacement theology for a lot of reasons. I understand what a lot of people are saying. But yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you there. So that's that's really good. So let me ask you this question, too. And, you know, with your position, it might seem like irrelevant in a way, but I guess I'm asking this too for the premillennialists who are going to be watching this because I think this is an important question that we need to answer. So when it comes to the millennium, all right, let me ask you the question. I'll ask you the question the way I do premillennialists. And that is if we believe a thousand year physical reign of Christ on earth is to come in the future, what is the purpose of that? Why do we need that why do we need that millennial reign what is the purpose of the millennial reign and so i guess with you believing it's this church age i guess how do you how do you would you answer that question but i want pre to think how would you answer that question as well okay um and and, and i you know i don't want to answer for them but mm -hmm. i i can imagine the premillennialists would say this is where the promises that have not been fulfilled to israel are going to be fulfilled that's 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 one of the arguments that i've heard and that gets back to your previous question um and obviously because i believe those promises have been fulfilled and will be fulfilled in the new heaven and new earth i don't think that they that a future millennium is necessary so what is why is the millennium necessary now well this is a it's an interesting way that you ask that because because I believe the millennium is the church age and because I believe it's the current explanation of what we're seeing. And again, because of how I interpret revelation as progressive parallelism, I, basically John is in, 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 in just a few verses in revelation 20 sort of caps, uh, uh, capsizing, not capsizing, <laughs> uh, 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 summarizing rather the, uh, the entire story that we have already seen several times through revelation. And that is the story of Christ coming, bringing redemption through the cross, and then uh, bringing the final judgment. And we see that Satan is bound. We believe that happened um, at the cross, uh, that we believe that he'll be released for a season toward the end. And that's why many amillennialists do believe in a coming tribulation, something toward the end where Satan is released to deceive the nations again. And then there will be a final destruction of Satan, which will inaugurate and bring about the final uh 
uh, eternal state rather. Uh, okay. So, so, so that's what the the millennium is, is is a short example or a short a short illustration of what we are what we see in history. And like I said, the, the biggest question there is how can you say Satan is bound now when the when there's so much terrible things going on in the world? And and I think this is important to understand what we what 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 I believe the Bible means when it says Satan is bound. It doesn't mean that Satan doesn't have the ability to do anything, but Satan doesn't have the ability to do what he wants. What Satan wants to do is bring a full-scale assault against God's people and a full-scale assault against God himself, and he is not able to do that right now. At one point, he may. At one point when he is released, he, he may be able to do that, and I think he will, but he cannot do that now. The, the church is here. The gospel is being proclaimed, and it's being proclaimed throughout the whole world, and when the, when the disciples preach the gospel. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like heaven, for, like lightning from heaven when you went and preached the gospel. In Romans 16, it says, you, you, you go and, and be excellent at what is good and be innocent of what is evil for God will crush Satan under your feet, right? So, so at the preaching of the gospel, how beautiful are the feet of those who, who, who share the good news, right? God is crushing Satan under our feet as we go out and proclaim the gospel. And so that's what we believe is, the, is referencing Satan's binding now. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned that too, that it's it's being bound in a specific way in a specific area. Because I always wondered about that too, because it's like, well, Satan walketh about his roaring lion seeking to be made of our. How is he bound? So no, and it and it I guess that makes sense too that so would you associate Gog and Magog then with the tribulation? Um, as far as uh, like cause in you know, I guess in Revelation, and and maybe where I might, we might be just kind of talking past each other a little bit because of the different positions. But like in our world, we've got Satan going after the woman for three and a half years in Revelation. But then we also have Gog and Magog, which we believe is after the millennium. But do you think that in in Revelation when it talks about, well, I guess you would believe that was seventy A.D. I'm I'm just trying to put all these things together, so I might be getting confused not, here. Not not necessarily. Um, okay. I mean, obviously, Gog and Magog is only referenced twice in the scriptures. It's re referenced in Ezekiel mm -hmm. 38 and Revelation 20. And so uh, this is one of those times where I think that John in the book of Revelation may be using an Old Testament example to point to something that's going to happen in the future, right? This, this mm -hmm. battle, this Gog and Magog battle is something that's still yet to come. This still could be, but again, it, it, it's, I don't think it has to fit within a framework of a dispensational seven-year tribulation. I think this could be the, 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 again, Satan is loosed for a season. He's loosed to do this thing. He's loosed to, to lead the, the enemies of God against God's people. And Christ comes to save the world, right? Christ comes on that white charger. He, he brings us up and then we come back with him and we come back with him in victory. The sword comes out of his mouth. He destroys his enemies, makes them his footstool. And all of those things happen in an instant. Um, and it, and, and it's a glorious victory, not a, uh, it, it, I, 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 there was a movie, I forget what the movie was, but the guy said, uh, he says, uh, he said, is it, is it going to be a glorious victory? He says, glorious, but not lengthy, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not going to take long, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's glorious, but it's not going to take very long because Christ doesn't have to fight the devil. Christ simply has to smite the devil, right? He's, mm -hmm. he's not going to, they're not going to be like, I don't, I don't know if you, you're, you're IFBC, you may not remember. You remember Carmen, the singer? Mm -mm. He was, a, he oh was a, yeah, the Christian, a, a Christian rock guy. 
yeah, yeah. Well, he had a song called he had a song called The Champion, and it was about the battle between Satan and and Jesus at the end. And it was this like long, like like, like Jesus is like Rocky, right? Like they're mm. fighting. That's not the way it is. Satan, you know, Satan is nothing compared to Christ, and the victory is again glorious, but not lengthy. Okay. <laughs> and so, uh, and so that battle, I think, is uh, is looking forward to that final thing. That's funny that you mentioned. I completely forgot about him, and I am IFB, so I didn't listen to him. But I remember hearing everybody preach against him. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep, yep. Uh, all right. So yeah. So no, but yeah. This is you know these things are all they're all you know making sense, and um, yeah, and that's one of the things that I'm finding out too is again being from the pre-tribulational dispensational world. I I really think that's one of the weakest, most inconsistent theologies, and I'm. I'm regularly finding myself still having some dispensational hold, holdovers on things. And so, uh, again, when it comes to the millennium, I am, I'm, I'm searching this out and just checking, checking things up. And so, uh, when it comes to the millennium, one of the passages that we would all think about in our dispensational world is in Isaiah eleven six. And so, you know, you believe that the millennium is more figurative you know, we would take it more literal. So in, you know, in Isaiah 11, six, you have the wolf dwelling with the lamb, the leopard lying down with the kid, the calf, and the young lion together, a little child leading them. You have, uh, it says in the cow and the bear shall feed their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox sucking child shall play on the hole of an asp. The weaned child shall put his hand in the cockatrice den. So, so things like that. In our world, we've always been taught that's literal. It, it will be that way. In the millennium, the little kids can play with snakes and you won't have to worry about it. So um, if that's figurative, what does that look like? What What's that talking about? Well, a co couple of things. Uh, one, <clears throat> I think Isaiah... Uh, is making a reference to the eternal state, not mm. to the millennium. And so that, that one of the things about amillennialism is we do believe the eternal state, and I know you do as well, eternal state is, is physical. The eternal state is not us sitting on a cloud strumming a harp. You know, mm. uh, it, it's, it's a new heaven and a new earth. And um, I know that there's some arguments against this being the eternal state uh, that some people make from Isaiah, but I, I think I think read within the bounds of prophetic literature, and people always ask me, "Do you believe the Bible? To, to, do you should you interpret the Bible literally?" I say, "No, I, I believe you interpret the Bible literarily, meaning you interpret it according to its literary genre." And Isaiah is prophetic utterances, right? So they have to be interpreted according to their literary genre. It, just like Revelation is apocalyptic literature, mm -hmm. has to be interpreted according to its genre. And so when we interpret the book of Isaiah, I think those passages point to a coming eternal state where there, there's no death, there's no fear, there's no, there's no divide between man and beast. I do believe there will be animals in the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, doesn't mean I think all dogs go to heaven, just say, <laughs> but, but, but I do believe in a physical creation that we're going to enjoy, much like the Edenic state that Adam was in prior to the fall, but better because this will not be a place where man can sin and can ruin the creation, but this new creation will be redeemed, perfected, and eternal. So um, now on that, I want to also say when, it, when we talk about the, uh, you know, the, the, this, this, this idea of this, this perfect state, if the, if the view, and I'm going to push back, not, not against you, but against mm -hmm. those who would say, well, well, the premillennialist has this view of the millennium, and this is where these perfect, th perfect things are going to happen. 
there are issues with that because in the premillennial view, the idea is that there is still going to be death in the, in the millennium, right? There's still mm -hmm. going to be, because there's going to be the glorified saints who come back right. with Christ and go into the millennium. But then there's going to be those who are not glorified and in their unglorified state are going to enter into the millennium and continue to procreate and have children. And, and so it's still, even though it's a millennial reign, it's still not a, a redeemed creation. You still have death, disease, and decay in the millennium. So if that is true, Isaiah 11, Isaiah, the passages you just pointed to don't really fit either. Don't really fit in their model because you still have the three things that sin brought into the world are death, disease, and destruction, right? You still have death, disease, and destruction in the millennium. Hmm. And if, if the premillennial view is true, so it doesn't fit either. So hmm. I think it fits more, more perfectly or more appropriately in the perfect eternal state. Okay. Yeah. So that, so that, yeah, that makes sense. What well, we would associate with money, we'd associate with new heaven and new earth and and i'm and i'm thinking out loud here too um and you can tell me if this is uh you know if this thought makes sense or not but um some people might point out certain things within reference to the millennium or the passages we would say are about the millennium where it's not quite perfect yet it, but at the same time too i do think one of the things that um, that I see a lot in study is I, I believe there's what I would call old covenant eschatology where this is an eschatology where God's kind of setting before him a blessing and a curse, but it's contingent on their obedience to the law. Well, those things never fully came to pass because they weren't obedient to the law. So I believe in the new Testament, we have a new covenant eschatology that is dependent on Christ. And so therefore, there are many similarities to things that we see in the Old Testament, but there's also differences. And the differences are the New Testament ones are fulfilled in Christ and they're better. So if somebody would point out something, well, this isn't quite perfection. Well, could it be because that was how things would have been assuming they are obedient to the old covenant? I don't, or am I out to lunch on that? I, I, well, well I, I could be complicating it. Too, no, 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 no. I, 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 the, the one thing I would want to be careful on and, and I know you're not saying this, but I do want to make sure nobody's hearing you and interpreting this. And you're, you're not saying that the old covenant salvation came through the obedience to the law. No. You're talking about blessings and, and yeah. Right. Yeah, Cause everyone who's ever been saved has been saved by grace through faith. Right. Yes. We would agree. hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I understand what you mean, though. There are there are certain covenantal promises within the old covenant, uh, particularly the Mosaic covenant, that that affirm, you know, do this and 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 live, do this and, right. and and you're blessed, and don't do this and you're cursed, right? And and I think that's true. And 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 I think, like you said, the the new covenant is better. It's better. Mm -hmm. You know, I call it the Papa John's covenant. It's better priesthood, better promises, <laughs> new covenant, right? So, so I know that's so cheesy, but mm -hmm. I'm, uh, I do make jokes. So so yeah, I, I think uh, I think there's something to what you're saying. I, I I may nuance it a little differently, but I, I would I think I would agree. Yeah. Okay, but yeah, yeah, but no, I said I, a lot of these things whenever they're kind of presented, you know, you do you have to think through a lot of things. And so I'm kind of doing some thinking out loud here, but, um, but no, that's, I think that's interesting and make, it makes a lot of sense. So something else uh, I've been meaning to talk about this. Somebody, somebody uh, sent me an article about this a while back. I never heard this before, but you referenced this 
in your debate with Spencer Smith. There's a word for it. I was just talking with somebody last night. He told me what the word is for it. It's a fancy theological term or a Greek term or something. I forgot what it was. But when it comes to the rapture, um, there is another explanation of the rapture that's not us being like taken up into heaven, but us just meeting Christ, but then coming right back to the earth. You explain that. Do you know what the term is for that, the way that's explained? And, and would you like to explain that for the audience? Yeah, um, there are two Greek phrases. Uh, let me see if I can pull up my notes real quick. I don't, I don't want to take too much time away from your audience here, but um, let me uh, pull up my uh, two, two, because okay, yeah, because yeah, on that debate too, while you're looking for that, um, you know, it would appear that you would hold to the idea that all of the references to Christ's return and second coming are all one event, where in the dispensational world and even in the post-trib pre-wrath world, we kind of separate like First Thessalonians four from Revelation nineteen, uh, and then people will often mock that, like, "Well, you're saying we're going right back up and then coming right back down," but that's actually not that far-fetched of an idea. And one of the things that I keep bringing up to all the people who even agree with me, how, why is the event of 1 Thessalonians 4 where Christ is coming in the clouds with his saints, and that's stated in 1 Thessalonians 4, he's coming with his saints. How is that not the same event as Jesus Christ in Revelation 19 coming in the clouds with his saints? If those are different events, I think we got to do a better job proving that. But one of the yeah. big things people say, well, that's just stupid. We just go right up and come right back down. Well, actually, it, it's not really that far-fetched. And so, yeah, if you want to ex explain that to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I got my notes pulled up here because the, 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 I, don't I, don't, I don't know if this is the word that you, that you heard. Um, upon, upon tason is the Greek word there, which is the, the word uh, which references um, uh, uh, to meet the Lord. The apontason means to meet when it says we're, we're caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Um, and some scholars believe that Paul is using a specific term that was describing a delegation who was sent out of the walls of the city, whose job was to formally welcome in a king or a dignitary, and then they would precede him back in, in, in procession as he enters in the city. And so that, that phrase is a technical term. We see it in other places uh, when, when the triumphal entry was happening, when Jesus was coming into the city in John 12, 13, the people went out to meet him and, and to come back in with him. Uh, and that, and th that has the same root. Hupontasis is the word that's there, which is apontasis. It's the same. It's just a similar, uh, 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 different prefix, but it's the same root. And, and those related words are also found in the parable of the virgins of Matthew 25, where you remember the virgins went out to meet the bridegroom as he came and back in with them to the banquet. So this term does have a consistent New Testament use, which references going out, meeting on as, as the king or the bridegroom or whomever it is, is coming back in. And uh, so I think that is certainly a, a, a reasonable understanding. And, and here's the key. We divide 1 Thessalonians 4 from other places where Jesus returns, and we make these sort of two returns. And I know dispensations don't like it when you say there's two returns of Christ, but, but, but you know what I mean. I'm not, I'm not mm -hmm. trying to be argumentative there. I'm just saying we, we make Christ's rapture and his return separate. But if you look at commentaries that, that are 
prior to 1830, specifically mm-hmm. the introduction of dispensationalism uh, with Darby and others, you know, and, and uh, you know, there are other, other, others who were involved in that, but particularly Darby obviously was, was influential. And then obviously the CI Schofield really popularized it through, uh, and then you mentioned Larkin's notes and things like that. But prior to that, you read Calvin's commentary on 1 Thessalonians 4, you read Gill's commentary on 1 Thessalonians 4, all these men who preceded the Adventist movement of the 1800s. You go back and you read comments, commentaries from history Nobody separates this. Nobody says this is anything other than the second coming. Mm-hmm. And nobody has to divide it out as two or three events. They, they see it as one event. And like I said in the debate, there are so many places in the Bible where we have to harmonize things. Like the, like the, the resurrection of Christ. There's mm-hmm. four different resurrection stories. Each one of them has a different amount of angels. Each one of them has a different situation with the Roman soldiers. Each one of them has a different situation with the women. Uh, each one of them, you know, that doesn't mean they're all different stories. Mm-hmm. It just means that we have to harmonize those stories to come to the right answer. And I think rather than dividing up the return of Christ, we harmonize it. We use Revelation 19 as sort of the as sort of the starting point, because that's the picture, right? Christ mm-hmm. returns on the horse. Okay, where are we in that? Well, we're with him. How did we get there? Well, we were caught up together with him so mm-hmm. we could return with him, right? Like, so all this happens together. And so that yeah. would be my very sim- very simple understanding. Okay. Yeah. No, I thought that was interesting. And again, people on my side, they, they get mad at me when I point out things that challenge our position on things. But it's just like, you know, for one, we can't just keep strawmanning other positions. You know, we uh, if there are better explanations of something, I don't understand why we can't you know, we can't use that. And there are things that make a lot of sense. And, you know, if we're so sure first Thessalonians four and revelation 19 are different events, we ought to be able to, to prove it not. And, and it ought to hold up against scrutiny. And so the, one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I thought that explanation that makes a lot of sense. And that is, you know, it, it shows that's not far fetched to teach that. And I'm not saying, I'm for sure in that camp. I'm just saying, you know, it's okay to take another look at some of these things. And, uh, but that's, uh, and yeah, I think apontasis was the word that uh, somebody mentioned to me. That's why I forgot it. Cause I can't remember words like that, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I had to look it up too. So yeah. <laughs> I didn't remember either. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But yeah, so just, I guess a couple things just to kind of close this out. So, um, so, you know, all these things make sense. Um, you know, they, again, you believe Jesus is coming back. You believe in the literal resurrection of the dead. So when it comes to a lot of these finer points, you know, we should be there. We should be able to disagree, have discussion. And, and so for me, one of the things that I'm always doing to test out, or to, I guess as, as a way to kind of check other people's positions is I like to ask questions where I feel like on our side, our answers just aren't real satisfactory. And, um, and, and that way too, if I'm like, well, man, what these people saying makes way more sense then that tells me, maybe we look a little more into what they have to say. Again, it doesn't prove anything, but it's just something that I I like to do. But, um, for example, what do you believe about the 144,000? I don't know. You know, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and I and that, that's one of the, the the one of the benefits of uh, of 
kind of where I stand is I, I, I think every, every group has unanswered questions mm. and some of them, some of them hide them better yeah, <laughs> so, uh -huh. because they're, because they have it, because they try to have an answer for everything. Um, you know, uh, I've heard so many different explanations. Uh, one of the biggest arguments about the 144,000 is that it has to be Jewish people because it says from the 12 tribes, mm -hmm. right? And so that reference, some people think it's a, it's you know, 144,000 virgin Jewish evangelists. I've heard that argument, yes. right? That that's what it is. I, 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 I'm, I'm not moved to 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 that answer that, that to take it that that literally. Um, but I do think it's uh, that th that it's a picture of God doing something through a group of people and what that group of people, who that group of people is, what that group of people is. I, I haven't reached a, a, a solid conclusion on it. I'm willing to say when I don't know. Yeah. Well, and people need to be willing to say that, you know, and I've got, I've got opinions, but, and I've got some ideas, but I don't have, I don't have a strong position on either. And I do think to claim, you know, 144,000 Jewish evangelists of descendants, direct descendants of each of these tribes, when you can't prove that, nobody knows what tribe they're from today. And and to me, biblically, whenever promises were made to different tribes, they always had to provide proof of these things. And so I, I think that's a ridiculous argument. But, you know, I, I don't. Uh, well, I think I've got better ones than they have. You know, I'm still not solid on it. Um, do you have a strong position about what the mark of the beast in 666 was? Now, now that I, that I'm a little more uh, willing to give an opinion again, mm -hmm. still an, only an opinion, and I, I'm I'm not willing to wrestle anyone over this, but uh, but I am willing to say I think there's a couple things to consider. One, I do believe, as I said, I believe Revelation is written before AD 70. Anybody who wants to look into this, look into Ken Gentry's work on this. I think he does a good job of making that argument. I understand that there's an argument that uh, a later early church father. Uh, references a later writing and some people make that argument and I always like to point out you don't like the church fathers until they agree with you so mm -hmm. so yeah people say oh the early church father said this and I'm like well you don't like those guys normally but you like yeah. them when they agree with you and that's not fair so um but in in general my reasoning for the early writing of revelation is because John says these things must soon come to pass, right? I, I look at those time marker words that are very early in Revelation. These things must soon take place. These things must soon come to pass. So I think he's looking within his lifetime, just like Jesus when he said, you know, this generation will not pass away. I think that happened. The destruction of the temple is in view there because it's within his lifetime, within that or within the lifetime of the, the hearers. And so with that being said, I think that Nero fits into this 666, that the, the number of the man, and there are many, many people who have pointed out the fact that if you do a little bit of, and I'm not a big fan of numerology, but if you do a little bit of number uh, study of how they understood what the numbers meant, that you would come up with uh, Kaiser Nero, which is uh, Nero Caesar is what, is, is what, that, what that would um, mean in English. And so I believe he was the beast. He was called a beast. He literally would dress in animal skins and rip men to shred with uh, shred men's flesh with his teeth. Like he did that for fun. Nero was an mm. absolute monster. And the stories of the things that he did, I mean, he would dip uh, Christians in pitch and he would burn them in his garden for fun. I mean, this was part of his just absolute monstrous behavior. And so there's that. Now, the mark of the beast, however, I think is an allegiance to that system is an allegiance to the um to the to that worldly system and so 
the, the hand and the, and the forehead, again, this is getting figurative and some people's head's going to explode because they want a literal mark mm. on the hand or on the forehead. The hand is representing what we do. The forehead is representing what we think, right? And so what we do and what we think shows our allegiance. What we do with our hands, what we do with our heads is shows who we are truly worshiping. And so when we, when we behave with our hands and, and think with our minds toward that worldly system, we are showing allegiance to that. We are taking that mark mm. in the same way that when we trust in Christ and we do works according to that faith, that is in reference to what, uh, to, to being a believer, you know, just, it talks about a mark on believers too. Mm. What's the mark on believers? The mark on believers is faith, right? Mm. That's what the mark is. I know the book of, um, or the books of, uh, Tim LaHaye, what was it, the Left Behind series, yep. they had a literal mark, but only other believers could see it, right? right. And that was sort of this phys physical thing. Um, now, with that being said, I'm not letting nobody put a, uh, a mark on me. Like if, if the mm -hmm. government said, hey, we're going to start marking you with a tattoo or we're going to put a microchip in your hand or your forehead, I'm going to say no. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily because I believe it's the mark of the beast, but I ain't, I ain't letting nobody put a mark on me mm -hmm. uh, today. So yeah. I, I think it, I think it references our allegiance to something. Um, but that's my, that's how I understand that passage. Okay. Yeah. And then I get, yeah. So that makes sense. And then I guess the last one, and that's, you know, that's not a uncommon thing. I think many people uh, have similar beliefs to that. And so that's, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, what about mystery Babylon? What do you believe that's in reference to? Uh, that, that one, I'm going to go back to the, sort of my answer for the 144 Jewish evangelists. I, I, I'm not certain. I mean, some people think that that is referencing Jerusalem because mm -hmm. Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. And again, if that, that would fit into that, that model, if that, if that is in fact the, the reference there and, and certainly possible. Okay. Well, yeah, well, fair enough. No, but I think, yeah, this was, I think very informative. I really appreciate you doing this and coming on. It's, um, I do. I, I said, I have opinions on things, but I've just, I've been trying to discipline myself before I talk about other positions. I want to make sure I, I fully understand it at least. And I accurately represent it because being from the post-trib pre-wrath world and being from independent fundamental Baptists, it is painful to listen to them represent, you know, what people like me believe. And I, and I just hate it. And so I try to make sure I don't do the same thing back to them. Um, also to people's just inability to have a conversation about these things just irritates me. I think it's a very IFB-ish thing too. Uh, maybe other denominations have the same problem too. So I, I, I want to set the example when it comes to these things. I, I like to do the things that other people don't do. And, uh, and, and I, I get a lot from it, you know. I've learned things from full preterists, even though I completely disagree with their main premise. And, you know, and I've, I've definitely, you know, learned some things listening to you and hearing where you come from. And it's like, yeah, you know what, let's take another look at some of these things, you know, and also, I, I also want to know too, that if I try to teach somebody different than that, that I've got, I've got to find out what's bringing them to their conclusion. And so. To me, that's kind of the best thing. And, you know, I guess one more thing before I kind of give you a final uh, word too, I meant to ask you about this, but do you have like any specific 
like proof texts that you would use to maybe debunk premillennialism, I guess. Um, not necessarily to debunk. What mm. I would say is that the millennium, if it if it is to be understood as the as the as the premillennial position would take, it's the only place in scripture where Christ's return does not culminate in the in, in judgment and in the final end of all things every parable jesus taught you know whether it's the dragnet or the parable of the wheat and the tares all these things end with the judgment right like like that's mm -hmm. why he comes he comes in judgment you know the the, the the even the the parable of the bridegroom right he comes and he takes his bride with him and and it's it's over right it's it's it, there's nothing more to the story except that eternal state that you know that 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 that's that that's the end of the story mm -hmm. and so i think the burden of proof actually lies on the other side and that is that you have to prove that this millennium is tacked on to what everything else in the scripture seems to point to the final ending, which is Christ's return. And so that's that's really what pushed me into amillennialism is I couldn't find a place anywhere else where this millennium fit, but I can fit it into the church age and I can make it make sense there versus tacking it on to the end where it does something to either fulfill promises to Jews or it does something to either you know, satisfy uh, a need for God to see Christ glorified on this earth before the new earth. You know, there's all kinds of reasons for the millennium that other people come up with. Mm -hmm. And I just have not been satisfied that those are necessary. And for me, it's, a, is this necessary? And I don't, I don't think that is the necessary reading. Yeah. Also, yeah. you end up with, a, also, you end up with a, with a, with a, with a millennium where, at the end, there's going to be another battle and there's going to be more death and all those things. And you think that's ended in Revelation 19. In fact, all the nations come under the foot of the of the Savior in, in Revelation 19. And then you got to do it again a thousand mm -hmm. years later. It just it just a lot of things in that in that just didn't fit with 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 how I understand the rest of the text. OK, yeah, that's good. Well, yeah, again, I, I really appreciate it. Do you have any other final words for the audience? How can they um, be, uh, how can they find you and things like that? Yeah. Uh, my final word to everybody is thank you. First of all, thank you, Tommy, for having me on. I appreciate you. You seem to be a very, very godly man. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful to uh, have been interviewed by you. And I hope that your audience understands that I'm not in any way saying, if you disagree with me, you're a heretic or anything like that. And I hope you don't think that of me. I think this is a third tier issue, meaning we have primary issues that are gospel issues, right? Who is Christ? What is salvation? Those things. Then you have secondary issues like baptism, things where we can disagree. And maybe that might separate us because we might be in different churches. But I think the third tier issues like eschatology, we can even be in the same church. I've served with elders who were dispensational and we served fine together because even though we disagreed on these things, we still were able to teach and, and preach together and, and even have these differences. So I, so I would hope there would be some liberty in how we understand these things. Uh, as far as getting a hold of me, anybody in the world is welcome to reach out to me. I am on Twitter at your Calvinist. Uh, people can follow me there. People can also message me through email. Uh, Calvinistpodcast at gmail.com is an open email that I have for anybody who would like to interact with me about my show. My show is called Your Calvinist Podcast with Keith Foskey. 
And if anybody wants to uh, recommend me doing a topic or inviting on a guest, or if somebody wants to be a guest on the show, I can't take every single person that wants to be on the show because obviously I only do one show a week and that's a lot. But uh, if somebody is interested and wants to recommend someone, they can send me a message through there and I will do my best to at least give them a response. Okay. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. And I wanted to recommend too on your videos, like I said, I, I love the videos kind of making fun of all the different denominations getting together and stuff. And I love the IFB stuff. I, I think we have, there's plenty of material uh, that we provide that people can laugh at for sure. I, I don't take it personal. I always think it's, those are my favorite ones, but I want to see included in these characters. I want to see the camp meeting preacher. You know, the, okay. Yeah. I, I love, I love the camp meeting. Uh, I, 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 I make fun of the camp meeting preachers all the time. I find them very entertaining and, um, I just, I, I, I know that would be, uh, one that you would be good at. And, and did you do one before I was trying to find it? Cause I wanted to share it on here. If I could find it, I, I thought you did one once where they were all talking prophecy together. Have you done that before? Um, I don't remember, you know, I've done, you might've done just 27 to not, yeah, yeah, I, 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 let me look and see if I, if I can find it, I'll send it to you. But I think I, I've, I did, there is one where they were ordering chicken wings and the dispensationalists. Yes. Uh, or I think that's on the coffee one. That, yeah. Is that on the coffee one? Cause, uh, on the, uh, on the coffee one, which I, is the one, yeah, that, um, we shared at the beginning or I, I'll share that one here at the end. So everybody stay tuned. I'll share you the coffee one. Yeah, that's where uh, you, they started talking about the Antichrist. And then the dispensationalist pops in. Like, did somebody say Antichrist? Or is oh, that oh, oh, that, oh, that's a different one. That I know which one you're talking about because he says, uh, yeah, did some, yeah. Uh, I'll send it to you. I know which okay. one you're talking about. I just got to figure out which one it is. Yep, yep. Cool. Yep. Well, all right. Well, <laughs> hey, I, again, thank you very much. Appreciate it. And appreciate everyone joining us today. I hope you got a blessing from this. And those of you again, too, whose heads are going to explode and you're mad that I had somebody on who has a different position, a Calvinist, again, deal with it. I still have a hundred percent record of being kind and polite with the guests I've had on, even where I disagree. I know that's not what anybody else in the Baptist world does, but it's what we do here. And uh, we have the most interesting conversations and we are on a journey to get it all figured out. We haven't got it. I, I haven't got it all figured out yet. That's not what this podcast is for. Not because I've got it all figured out and I'm going to let you all know, but I am not afraid to figure it all out. I am not afraid to admit maybe I had something wrong. I am not afraid to check with forbidden sources and things like that to get to the truth. That's what we do here. So I uh, appreciate you watching. Make sure you like, subscribe, do all that good stuff. And, uh, Stay tuned. We'll do more stuff like this in the future. So thank you all for watching. God bless. And stay tuned for another uh, video of Pastor Foskey uh, imitating all the different denominations. I brought the trusty 38 Special Revolver. It's worked for years, so there's no reason to ever change. This is the old paths right here. If gospel hymns were a firearm, this one would be amazing grace. I brought a 12 gauge shotgun. I'm not concerned with precision or accuracy. I like things loud, spread out, and a little wild. I brought along a Smith & Wesson 500 because we know that bigger 
is always better. It may be large and hard to manage, but it gets attention. And we know that attention is the most important thing. If you love Jesus, you're going to shoot a 50 cow. America! Superior theology requires a superior firearm, so I'll be shooting the 1911. You think somebody with superior theology will be able to recognize perfection? And Glock, now that's perfection. I prefer not to shoot with Tupperware, thank you. Guns should be made of metal. Then you're gonna love this. Us Lutherans believe that superior technology comes from Germany. So I will be shooting the Waffa PK-380. I brought along a pistol caliber carbine. It's the best of both worlds. The low recoil of a pistol with the accuracy of a rifle. Cause I like to have one foot in both camps.